the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, we are so, so deeply grateful for the gift of your Son, Jesus. How in love you sent him into this world to us in order to save us. We are so grateful that we are your children, made your children by adoption, because of all that Jesus did for us. And as we now go through this holy week together, we pray that you would bless us with a spirit of deep interiority, that we might follow in the footsteps of our Lord, and that this week may be truly blessed. And we make our prayer through the holy and the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I want to dedicate this talk to Mary, the mother of Jesus, who is for us in the whole church a mother of mercy and compassion. She is the one who participated very deeply and intimately in the work of our salvation. She was always with Jesus. If not physically, she was united with him in her love and compassion. And so with her and through her prayers, we want to do the same in this holy week, to stay very close to Jesus in all these events that brought us salvation. I want to begin by sharing a passage from Scripture from the book of Deuteronomy. The book of Deuteronomy is Moses standing before the people of God at the end of their sojourn through the wilderness. They're about to enter the promised land, the land that God promised them. And God, through Moses, is inviting them to remember all that God did during those 40 years before they enter. This is Deuteronomy chapter 4. What does God say to his people before they enter the land? Be careful that you do not forget the things your eyes have seen, or let them fade from your heart as long as you live. Teach them to your children and to your children's children after them. And for this purpose of remembering, what did God do? All the acts of intervention, 
when God acted in history to save his people, he would ask his people to remember by having a celebration, an assembly with particular rituals that they would follow to celebrate a feast that would mark that moment when God loved them, saved them, delivered them. The most significant of these feasts in Israel's life, of course, was Passover. This is from the book of Exodus, chapter 12. To this day shall be a memorial feast for you, which all your generations shall celebrate with pilgrimage to the Lord. For seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. Keep this custom of unleavened bread, since it was on this very day that I brought you out of the land of Egypt. You must celebrate this day throughout your generations as a perpetual institution. And as they would celebrate, it did two things. They would remember, and it was a way to relive the experience of being delivered. At the end of Deuteronomy in chapter 26, God establishes another feast, which they call the Feast of Weeks or of Shavuot. And this was to mark the time of harvest. God instructed his people to make an offering each year of the first fruits of the land God gave them. A sample of various crops were placed in a basket, and the basket was brought to the priest who placed it in front of the altar of the Lord. And after that, the person or persons who brought the offering would recite the following. My father was a wandering Aramean, and he went down into Egypt with a few people and lived there and became a great nation, powerful and numerous. But the Egyptians mistreated us and made us suffer, subjecting us to harsh labor. When we cried out to the Lord, the God of our ancestors, and the Lord heard our voice and saw our misery, toil and oppression, the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, with great terror and with signs and wonders. He brought us to this place and gave us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Sounds like Wisconsin. <laughs> and now I bring the first fruits of the soil that you, Lord, have given me. When they would celebrate these rituals, like this ritual offering of the first fruits, 
What was happening? It was memorializing a past divine act. In this case, reminding the person of their origins in Abraham's act of faith, of God's blessing and election of them as his people, of his faithfulness in delivering them. And this fostered daily in the lives of Israel gratitude for God's covenant love. And it helped them to see everything in their life within the covenant relationship with God. The masses that we celebrate every Sunday and especially the liturgies of this upcoming week that we call Holy Week, proclaim and carry this story of salvation history that began long ago with Israel and has now been brought to complete fulfillment in Christ by his life, death, and resurrection. Like the people of Israel, this is how we pass on the story to our children, teaching them how their life is part of this amazing story, this real drama that takes us right into eternity, and how their baptism was the beginning. It was our beginning, that first moment when the power and the mercy of Christ's death and resurrection touched our life, our children's life, and inserted us into this great story of salvation. And so we can see, as the case with Israel, why these celebrations are so important. By the liturgy, liturgical celebrations of Holy Week and the Easter Triduum, Holy Thursday, Good Friday, the Easter Vigil, and Sunday, we not only remember, but when we celebrate, we relive the events so that these redemptive acts of God in Jesus Christ may continue to shape and define our life and continue to bear the joyful, glorious fruits of our redemption that unfold through time. There's a beautiful little excerpt from St. John Chrysostom. He was a fourth century saint who wrote beautifully about our faith. And he talks about what we celebrate in the Easter Vigil. The Israelites witness marvels. You also will witness marvels, greater and more splendid than those which accompanied them on their departure from Egypt. 
You did not see Pharaoh drowned with his armies, but you have seen the devil with his weapons overcome by the waters of baptism. The Israelites passed through the Red Sea. You have passed from death to life. They were delivered from the Egyptians. You have been delivered from the powers of darkness. The Israelites were freed from slavery to a pagan people. You have been freed from the much greater slavery to sin. The gifts you have received are far greater than theirs. Amen. Why are these moments of liturgy, of feasts and celebration, why are they so important? We cannot know who we are or the meaning of our life if we do not realize how our little story from birth to death is part of a much greater story, a history of God's saving love that reveals several things. One, they reveal our origins. We have come from God. Yes, I am the son of Phyllis and Robert Hoffman, but I am much more than that. I came from God, the one who created me. God is my origin, my, my source of my very existence. It's because of God that I am. And it was my parents that cooperated with God. Two, it reveals the why of evil, sin, suffering, and death. Original sin, personal sin, and God's plan to save us. The world is trying to figure all this out, and the world has its own opinion about evil, about sin, suffering, and death. They have their own narrative. But we have the revelation of God. We have the clear light of truth of why this world is such a mess and why this world needs a Savior. You know, one of the saddest things is how our culture tries to normalize and even celebrate brokenness and sin. And the saddest thing about that is then it becomes a world that does not need Jesus. It does not need a Savior. Because over and over again, our culture is trying to say what we call sinful and broken to say there's nothing wrong, that it's normal. 
And, and that is the saddest thing to me about what we're witnessing. And therefore, the world doesn't need Jesus. And boy, does it ever need Jesus. Hopefully, everyone will come to know that. Third, these celebrations continually remind us that we are loved in both the act of creation and in all the acts of salvation. These celebrations remind us that we are objects of God's mercy. I can be forgiven. I can make a new beginning and live a new life. Sin does not have to define me. Sin does not have to have the last word. Jesus gives the offer of a new life. These celebrations also remind us of our deepest identity, that we are children of God. Yes, I am the son of Robert and Phyllis. I'm the brother of Michael and Susan. I'm the nephew or the uncle of nine troublemaking nephews and nieces. Yes, I have these other identities, but that is not what is my ultimate identity. I am a child of God, and there's no greater identity that can be conferred on a human being. And if I don't know that identity, then I will take on all the false identities that the world continues to offer and parade in front of us to get my identity in what I do, in my accomplishments, in my success, in my reputation, in what I drive, in what I wear, what people think of me, what they don't think of me. Identity confusion is one of the main spiritual ills of our age because people don't know who they truly are. And this is what our celebrations continually remind us so that we don't fall into the darkness and confusion in the world. These celebrations also remind us that we belong to God, to the family of God. We are members of Christ's body part of the family that we call the church that Jesus Christ instituted himself. And finally, these feasts and celebrations remind us of our destiny. We are destined to heaven. This world is not it. We are pilgrims sojourning to something greater, the kingdom of heaven. The problem today, as you can see, is that so many do not know themselves within this cosmic narrative of creation and salvation. 
and therefore they cannot make sense of life. It becomes then a life of vanity, of aimless striving, empty pursuits, allured by what is passing and fleeting, stuck in the immediate succession of activities and pastimes with little or no thought of God, salvation, or eternity. It's sad that so many of our youth today know more about famous athletes, singers, and actors than they do about Jesus Christ. Very sad. So, let's prepare to enter Holy Week, Palm Sunday. This is the prayer of blessing of the palm branches. With all faith and devotion, let us commemorate the Lord's entry into the city for our salvation, following in his footsteps, so that being made by his grace partakers of the cross, we may have a share also in his resurrection and life. On Palm Sunday, we celebrate with the first century crowds the entry of Jesus in Jerusalem, amidst the cries and shouts of rejoicing. Hosanna to the Son of David is what they're crying out. Jesus is hailed as the new King Solomon. The people welcome him with joy, throwing their cloaks down before him on the road, waving their palm branches in the air as they sing phrases of Psalm 118, one of the praise psalms used for the great feasts of the year. At this moment, it appears that Jesus is finally receiving the recognition and worship he deserves as the Messiah King who has come to deliver and save his people. But by reading the account of the Passion on Palm Sunday, we are reminded that many of the people in this festive crowd that are crying Hosanna and hailing Jesus as their Messiah King will with only a few days reject him as their king and shout for his crucifixion. Let us not be surprised by this, but rather let us humbly and honestly admit how our own love and devotion to Christ has so often wavered, has it not? There's this very moving line from the prophet Hosea, chapter 6. God says, 
What am I to do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like dew on the grass that quickly vanishes. Mea culpa. Lord, have mercy on me for all the times my love became lukewarm. Some days we look at our heart and boy, we're really lacking a deep and great love and devotion to our Lord. It can become so weak. One day it's strong, the next way, the next day, so weak. We can be like the crowds. One day we're all for Jesus, and the next day we're angry at God because of something we're suffering. We're just like them. And as we relive this moment, this Sunday, we need to search our hearts. Lord, help me to be like Mary, faithful to Jesus to the end. No matter what I endure and suffer in this life, help me never to forsake my Lord. Help me stay faithful. Help my love always to be strong. Jesus' entry into Jerusalem reveals how he also enters into our hearts. Meek, gentle, and humble. Isn't that amazing? He rides into Jerusalem on the fowl of an ass, on a colt, gentle, meek, humble. That's how he enters our life, how he enters your heart, my heart. On Palm Sunday, our Palm Sunday celebration holds a joy far greater than that of the crowds who welcomed Jesus into Jerusalem in the first century. Christ has truly entered our hearts through baptism, has made his triumphal entry into our lives, and we have experienced his victory over sin countless times. And each year through the grace of every Lent, this time of penance, we have been able to hand over to Jesus any areas where sin still holds us captive, allowing the reign of Jesus to extend over our hearts and over our lives. In a real way, the mystery of Palm Sunday repeats itself countless times in our life. For each day offers us the opportunity to welcome Jesus as our King anew. Jesus renews his coming to us in so many ways, coming to us in the Eucharist, in the merciful absolution of confession, in the sweet communion of prayer, coming to us in the mutual exchange of self-giving, sacrificial love, 
coming to us in all the distressing, distressing disguises of the poor whom we are called to serve. And how do we welcome Christ? This is the grace of Palm Sunday, acknowledging Christ's real presence with and among us and within us and proclaiming him as our King with renewed love and with renewed desire to follow him and serve him unto death. There's a beautiful excerpt from another saint in our tradition uh, from the 7th, 8th century, St. Andrew of Crete. This is what he said to the Christians of that time to help them prepare and deeply live the celebration of Palm Sunday. Let us go together and meet Christ on the Mount of Olives. Let us run to accompany him as he hastens toward his passion, imitating those who met him, not by covering his path with garments, olive branches, or palms, but by prostrating ourselves before him in humility. Let us spread before his feet not garments or lifeless olive branches that wither, but ourselves, clothed in garments made white by his blood. We who have been baptized into Christ must ourselves be the garments that we spread before him. Boy, what a different Palm Sunday that would be. Because that white gown that we wore in our baptism, that, gown, that white gown represents the blood of Jesus that cleanses us from original sin and further cleanses us in the sacrament of confession. And adults who are baptized, not only original sin, but all personal sin is cleansed by the blood of Jesus. And to imagine us on Palm Sunday laying down before Jesus in gratitude our white garments made white by his blood. Whoa! What a beautiful moment that procession can be into the church that we would see it and approach it that way. Holy Thursday. I want to begin by sharing a rather lengthy quote from our dear friend, Archbishop Fulton Sheen, because it ties us to what I mentioned in the beginning. And after this part, I'm going to give us a fifth five-minute break. Okay? Just so you know what's coming. This is from a work on the Mass where he tries to show how Holy Thursday is connected to Good Friday. At the Last Supper, Jesus gave the command to his disciples to prolong the memorial of his death. Do this 
in memory of me. Repeat, renew, prolong through the centuries the sacrifice offered for the sins of the world. Our Lord never told anyone to write about his redemption, but he did tell his apostles to renew it, apply it, commemorate it. He wanted the great drama of Calvary to be played not once, but for every age. He wanted us not only he wanted us not only to be readers about his redemption, but actors in it, offering up our body and blood with his in the reenactment of Calvary upon our altars. He who is eternal and therefore outside of time knew how to give us this blessed privilege of standing with Jesus at the cross. This he did by instituting the Mass, which is the representation of the drama of Golgotha. Calvary was only one small place on earth, but what took place there can affect people everywhere in all corners of the earth. The Mass plants the cross in a town like Mendota, in a village, in a mission, in a cathedral. It draws back the curtains on time and space and makes what happened on Calvary happen here and now. The sacrifice of the cross, therefore, is not only something that happened 2,000 years ago, it is something that is still happening. On the cross, our blessed Lord knew how every individual soul in the world would react to his supreme act of love. He knew whether or not we would accept him or reject him. No one of us knows how we will react until we are confronted ourselves with Christ and his cross and see it unrolled on the screen of time. But the Mass gives us an intimation. We were not conscious of being present on the cross on Good Friday, but we are consciously present at Mass, hopefully. We can know something of the role we played at Calvary by the way we act and participate in the Mass in the 21st century and how it changes our life. All humanity is taking sides, either sharing in the redemption or rejecting it, either being on the cross with Jesus or beneath the cross with those who are hating him, mocking him, and rejecting him. You see, this is why the Synod is going to focus one of the years 
on the Eucharist and the Mass. It is so important that we become, as God's people, as Christian Catholics, deeply connected to the Mass. Because there are a lot of people who do not yet understand the mystery being celebrated and what we are to do when we are there. If I was to put the Mass on a scale on one side and something on the other side, what could possibly be more important than the Mass? Golfing? Shopping? Fishing? Sleeping in? What what could I put here that could possibly weigh more than the blessing and gift of one single Mass? And if I truly knew, as Archbishop Fulton Sheen so beautifully describes what is happening at the Mass, I would not miss a single Mass unless I was sick, unless the weather prevented me, that there was something that would prevent me, I would not miss a single Mass. This is why we need to recenter ourselves as a community and understand why the Church places the Mass at the center of our Catholic Christian life. In the holy celebration of Holy Thursday, we celebrate three things. The institution of the Lord's Passover meal, which we call the Holy Mass, a meal that anticipates and makes present the sacrifice of Calvary, and which provides the whole church with the food of immortality, the body and the blood of Christ, the gift that we call the Eucharist. Secondly, Holy Thursday celebrates the institution of the Holy Priesthood. In the command to the apostles to repeat this Passover meal in his memory, Jesus is conferring on his disciples the Holy Priesthood so that the church can celebrate and receive the Eucharist to the end of time. Even in times of persecution, even when the church has to go underground, like Saint Miguel Pro, when the church in Mexico in the 1920s was oppressed, Father Miguel Pro would dress up in disguises. One day he would be a mechanic, the next day he'd be a a door-to-door salesman, And this is how he would go about the city and in the basements of houses they would celebrate masses when the church was being persecuted and oppressed. Isn't that something? You know, and I'm I'm ready. If if that should happen, I just got to get clever at disguises. You know? And I might need your help, right, to make some of those disguises, right? And then third, the Mass lived out is expressed so movingly in the washing of the feet. 
The washing of the feet extends the Eucharist beyond our celebration into our daily lives of sacrificial servant love that we are commanded to show one another. The opening prayer for Holy Thursday expresses it beautifully. O God, who have called us to participate in this most sacred supper, in which your only begotten Son, when about to hand himself over to death, entrusted to the church a sacrifice new for all eternity, the banquet of his love. Grant, we pray, that we may draw from so great a mystery the fullness of charity and of life. And finally, just one more thing. Immediately following our celebration of the Lord's Supper, the Blessed Sacrament is processed out of the church to a place for prayer and adoration where it is reserved until the Easter Vigil. It's at this moment we enter into a time of sacred silence. And we want to keep this vigil with the Lord as he prays in the garden. We want to be with him in his agony. And then he will be arrested and he will spend the night in a cold, dark, damp prison. And so after we leave here on Holy Thursday and we are encouraged to keep silence, here's where we often fall off the wagon. We go home and watch TV. Are you kidding me? Really? This happens once a year. We are given an opportunity to relive this event that carries the memory of what Jesus did for our salvation. We have one opportunity, and we're going to let the world rob it from us? Really? I'm going to go home and have a steak sandwich? Get on my cell phone and start doing what I normally do? Can I not organize my life once a year to follow in the footsteps of Mary and stay with Jesus in a prayerful disposition from Holy Thursday to the Easter Vigil? trying to keep my life simple, do all my shopping now so I can hunker in to a time of retreat and prayer, light candles, play music, read the scriptures, just be with the Lord in his agony, in the prison, in his passion, on the cross, in the tomb. This is what we're invited to do. How can we go about life as normal? Let's not waste. Israel was called to relive the time of deliverance and to stay with the feast and to live it in the spirit in which it is tended. During Holy Week, especially on Good Friday, 
we see not what the world often values and holds dear, but what God values. There's a beautiful meditation from St. Thomas Aquinas, that wonderful Dominican priest. And in this meditation on the passion and death of Christ, he sees in it an invitation of conversion in what we value. The invitation to despise what Jesus despised in his passion and death and to love what he loved. And here's the examples he gives. For example, in accepting to be mocked and crowned with thorns, Jesus despised honors and status. Jesus despised ambition and grand displays of worldly power in being crucified in weakness, like a sacrificial lamb silent before his executioners. He opened not his mouth. He did not respond with threats. Wow, that's hard for us. He despised reputation and the favor of human beings and their opinions. Scripture says he was hated and despised. His only concern was to please the Father. This was his only desire. Jesus despised pleasures. He did not cling to them. Scripture says they gave him gall and vinegar to drink. Jesus despised attachments to material things and pleasures. His heart was not set upon them. Scripture says they stripped him of his garments. Jesus died destitute and naked on the cross. We were not physically present at Calvary with the disciples when Jesus died. But in our Good Friday celebration, we relive that moment now as disciples and friends of Christ to follow in his footsteps, not as a further cause to Jesus of pain and sorrow that our sins have caused him, but now as a source of comfort and consolation to our suffering Lord. We can comfort and console him by our contrition and by all of our acts of love and devotion. Our fasting and abstinence from meat on this day is intended to help us be in solidarity with our suffering Lord as we also intercede for the salvation of the world. And you know, this, this part of Lent and of Holy Week, this spirit of penance 
is another thing that the culture often dilutes and takes away from us. You know, on Fridays during Lent, we're asked to give up meat. Of course, you know, these days, that's not very hard to do, is it? And I can have crab legs and lobster and, you know, whatever, right? We're always trying to find a way around the cross and around penance. You know, as I sit there at one of those all-you-can-eat fish fries, filling my face, I say, boy, I love Lent. This penance thing is great. Jesus, high five. But we forgot, like, what's the purpose? Why would it be better for us to, for example, gather with our family, maybe households in a neighborhood, and have just a simple bowl of soup? Why would that be better? Because as the Israelites would have bitter herbs on the Seder meal plate to remind them of the bitterness that they experienced in the wilderness and in the suffering under servitude in Egypt, if we do something more penitential and more simple, it helps us to relate to the cross of Jesus, to be in solidarity with the suffering Christ, and to express by this simple meal gratitude for what Jesus did for me. An all-you-can-eat crab leg dinner just doesn't do it. It's not the same. It's not the spirit that was intended. And again, as Catholics, we have just, we've gone more the way of the world. And the world is always taking what is Christian and trying to reinterpret or dilute it. Take Christ out of Christmas. Put the Easter bunny in place of other things, right? Even though there's some Christian symbols in there. Okay. Here is where we must encounter Mary and how she lives this amazing mystery of compassion, how with her whole being she suffers with Jesus. She comes alongside of Jesus, the one who is suffering, and lives what he lives. Because of the love that binds Mary and Jesus together, everything that Jesus suffers becomes what Mary suffers in her heart. That beautiful hymn, Stabat Mater, expresses this so movingly. These stanzas that we sing in between the stations of the cross on Fridays, let me just mention a few of them to get us into Mary's heart and overflow into our heart. At the cross, her station keeping, stood the mournful mother weeping, close to Jesus to the last. Through her heart, his sorrow sharing, all his bitter anguish 
bearing. Now at length the sword has passed. Make me feel as thou hast felt, O Mary. Make my soul to glow and melt with the love of Christ my Lord. Holy Mother, pierce me through. In my heart, each wound renew of my Savior crucified. Let me share with thee his pain, who for all my sins was slain, who for me in torment died. Can you imagine Mary going home after the crucifixion and watching TV? No way. No way. She stayed with Jesus to the last. Jesus welcomes Mary's presence, her compassion, her companionship in love. And he is consoled by this, by her faith, her love, her compassion, her fidelity. And as Jesus welcomed the help of Simon the Cyrenian to carry his cross, so he welcomes the help of Mary. And on Good Friday this week, he welcomes our love, our devotion, our compassion, our following in his footsteps, not causing him more pain and more suffering, but being like a balm of comfort by our love, our devotion, our willingness to stay with him. Remember that, those moving words in the garden? Can you watch with me just one hour? Just, just one hour. Can I not organize my life on Holy Thursday night? to spend one hour with Jesus? Is my life such that I can't spend one hour with Jesus? Maybe I need to relook at my life if I can't do that. Like Jesus and Mary, each of us must walk our passion of love unto death in order to share in Jesus' resurrection Jesus gives Mary to us from the cross to accompany us as she accompanied Jesus to Calvary. As we listen to the account of his passion and venerate the cross with our hands, our knees, our lips, and our tears, we contemplate the full meaning of the Lord's words the night before. This is my body given up for you. This is my blood shed for you. As we gaze with our hearts once again on that pure, sacred body of Jesus, pierced with nails in hands and feet, our hearts are pierced with deeper sorrow for our sins and moved with greater love and gratitude for what Christ did for us. 
by the original sin of Adam and Eve and our own personal sins, the sentence of death came upon us. But Jesus took our place. He died our death that we can share in his death unto life. Now we kiss on Good Friday the cross of Christ. One day we will kiss our own crosses, every single one of them, even the ones that now we complain against, that we grumble. We will kiss every one of the crosses that we've had to carry in this life. Because we will see how God worked in every single one of them. The liturgy of the Lord's Passion has great power to reshape our view and our response to the suffering in our life. We do not have to live very long before suffering in some form enters our life. Suffering, in fact, seems almost inseparable from human existence. And regardless of the form this suffering takes, there often arises within the heart of the one who suffers the question, why? Why does it have to be this way? We not only wish to know what causes our suffering, but we also struggle to understand its purpose and its meaning. To suffer is one thing, but to suffer pointlessly only increases the pain even more. When we are struggling in our life, especially when losing someone dear to us, it is at these moments we often struggle with our faith. Where is God? Is God with me? God doesn't seem to be answering my prayers, and this only adds to the suffering. And as we experience various sufferings, our immediate initial reaction can often be one of anger, sadness, worry and anxiety, resentment or self-pity, and even despair. But we should not be surprised by these various reactions, nor should we be ashamed of them. And regardless of how unchristian they may feel to us, we must be careful not to suppress them or deny them, but rather bring them into the space of our prayer and allow God's grace to touch and penetrate them. Then and only then will it be possible to see and respond to our suffering in a new way. Although some suffering can be avoided, there is plenty that cannot. While many endure suffering tolerably well, they would not say they find joy in their suffering, 
Amen? <laughs> Quite the contrary. How can there possibly be joy in suffering? But Good Friday reveals in the clearest, most powerful way, there can only be joy in suffering when it is related to Christ and sharing something intimately with Christ and therefore embraced with love. Remember what Jesus said at the Last Supper? There's no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. And then he says, and I call you friends. I call you friends. If you do what I command you, and what's the command? Love one another as I have loved you. As I have laid down my life in love for you, so together with me, I want you to lay down your life for each other and for the church, no matter what the cost. So the cross becomes a way of loving, of sharing in the love of Christ unto death, of expressing Christ's love for the good and growth of his body, the church. And so our present sufferings, regardless of the source, is our way of sharing in the cross of Christ in the now of our life here. So suffering for the church is what Paul means in Colossians when he says, now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you, the Christians, and I fill up in my own body what is still lacking in the sufferings of Christ, my part, for the sake of his body, which is the church. And then he encourages Timothy, one of those first bishops, bear your share of hardships for the sake of the gospel with the strength that comes from God. But suffering, again, regardless of the source, can be a way of intimacy, of sharing in our friendship with Jesus something that Jesus has already lived and now wants me to live with him. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. I think no one has put it more beautifully or clearly than our friend, St. Mother Teresa of Calcutta. This is what she said to her sisters to understand how suffering can be turned into love that is intimacy between Jesus and us. Here's what she said. Suffering has to come because if you look at the cross, what do you see? Jesus' head is bending down because he wants to kiss you. His hands are open wide to embrace you. And his, par his heart is pierced open to receive you. When you feel miserable inside, look at the cross and you will know what is happening. Suffering, pain, sorrow, 
humiliation, feelings of loneliness. These are the kiss of Jesus, a sign that you have come so close to Jesus crucified that he can kiss you. Do you understand, she asked? Suffering, pain, humiliation, this is the kiss of Jesus Christ. At times you come so close to Jesus on the cross that he can kiss you. If suffering came into the life of Our Lady and into the life of our Lord, it has to come into our life as well. Only never put on a long face. Suffering is a gift from God, a gift between you and Jesus alone on the inside. Wow. Isn't that beautiful? How many of us look at suffering that way? <laughs> this is why she's a saint. This is why she's a saint. But she's inviting us. All of us can become saints. And maybe sometimes we miss crosses in our life. Maybe there's moments where we don't carry them so well. But let's always return to this vision of how the cross is love. How the cross changes suffering into a way of loving and going further in love. I gotta say, when I when I'm at Good Friday watching the cross venerated by all the families that come forward to venerate the cross, I've been here eight years now, and I know, I know some of the crosses and burdens that many of you have carried over the years, the trials that you have been through, the burdens you even now carry. I know some of those. And as I see you go forward and touch and venerate that cross, boy, it's moving. I have a hard time keeping it together. And how you are relating what you have suffered now to the suffering of Christ. So when you come to Good Friday, bring whatever you are suffering in your life, whatever burdens you carry, bring it to the cross. That's what we are called to do on Good Friday. And again, we leave the church in silence. Christ is in the tomb. All right? Holy Saturday morning. Sometimes we want to jump from Good Friday to Easter. Let's stay with Saturday morning, that time when Jesus is in the tomb to continue our prayerfulness, our Holy Week retreat. From midnight Thursday to Saturday morning, the church interior reflects the absence of Christ. The altar is stripped bare, and most striking of all, the tabernacle doors are wide open, and the tabernacle is empty. Ouch. Absence, barrenness, emptiness. During this short time, we live what the disciples lived when the Lord was taken from them. 
the strong feelings of absence and separation. And while absent from them, Jesus will be on trial, he will spend the night in prison, and the next day they will crucify him and enclose his body in the cold darkness of a tomb sealed over with a stone. What is Jesus doing at this moment? His body is resting in the tomb, but what about his soul? There's a beautiful homily from the ancient church that gives us a sense of, yeah, what is Jesus doing? Listen to this excerpt from this ancient homily that tries to get us into the spirit of Holy Saturday morning. Something strange is happening. There's a great silence on earth today, a great silence and stillness. The whole earth keeps silence because the king is asleep. The earth trembles and is still because God has fallen asleep in the flesh. God has died in the flesh and hell trembles with fear. He has gone to search for our first parents as for lost sheep, greatly desiring to visit those who live in darkness and the shadow of death. He has gone to free from sorrow the captives Adam and Eve, he who is both the Son of God and the Son of Eve. The Lord approaches them bearing the cross, the weapon that had won him the victory, saying, Awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and I will give you light. I am your God, who for your sake have become your Son. Out of love for you and for your descendants, I now by my own authority command all who are held in bondage to come forth, all who are in darkness to be enlightened, all who are asleep to arise. I order you, O sleeper, to awaken. I did not create you to be held a prisoner here. Rise from the dead, for I am the life of the dead. Rise up, work of my hands, you who were created in my image. Rise, let us leave this place, for you are in me, and I am in you. See on my face the spittle I received in order to restore you to life that I once breathed into you. See the marks of the blows I received in order to refashion your warped nature in my image. On my back see the marks of the scourgings I endured to remove the burden of sin that weighs upon your back. See my hands nailed firmly to a tree, for you once wickedly stretched out your hand to a tree. Rise, let us leave this place. The enemy led you out of the earthly paradise. I will not restore you to that paradise, but I will enthrone you in heaven. Wow. 
God's busy afterwards. God is busy even while Jesus is in the tomb. All right? And so it is good for us not to move too quickly to the Easter vigil and dive on those chocolate-covered Easter eggs. Okay? Let's stay with Jesus in the tomb. Now, finally, and I'll get you out on time, is the Easter vigil. During the daylight hours on Holy Saturday, our prayer vigil continues as we wait in silent hope for the Easter vigil, when churches all over the world will break the silence with Easter alleluias, singing joyful songs of praise and thanksgiving for the Lord's resurrection. What joyful emotions are felt as the Easter fire is lit and blessed, and our Easter candle, symbol of Christ, who enlightens the whole world by his resurrected glory, fills the darkness of that evening with its light, as together we listen to the story of creation and salvation, culminating with the celebration of the Holy Eucharist. Christ is back. Christ is risen. With the resurrection of Jesus comes a new presence. The emptiness of our lives is filled. The dawn of a new day rises. Jesus Christ, who dispels the darkness that sin and death have brought. Death no longer has the power to hold us in its grip. Within death blossoms the bright promise of the resurrection. Alleluia, the tomb is empty, the most powerful symbol of our Easter faith. But more powerful and wonderful is the fact that our life is now filled with the joy and gift of Christ's risen presence, who shares with us his victory, blesses us with new life, and fortifies our hearts with life-giving hope, resurrection, and eternal life. There's a medieval depiction of the crucifixion, and I was told, someone looked it up for me and found out where to find it. It's um, a crucifix from the 13th century found in the chapel of the castle of St. Francis Xavier in northeast Spain, and there's something different about this crucifix. There's a slight smile on the face of Jesus, on the cross. And that smile is Jesus knows he's going to rise. He told his disciples three times, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, I'm going to suffer, they're going to put me to death. And then he would say, and in three days, I'm going to rise. That depiction indicates that even on the cross, Jesus knew, and so there's a faint smile on his face. I love it. Look that up. Look that up on, on Google. 
The cross is a tree of life. It acts like a spade that turns and breaks up the soil, revealing things that are not yet fully redeemed. And we don't like this, though we like the results when it's over. The cross works like a pruning shears that cuts away the dead parts that hold us back and trims other parts of our life so that they can bear more fruit. Unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Just as grains of wheat cannot become bread without passing through the calvary of the mill, or grapes become wine without the crucifixion of the winepress, I borrowed that from Archbishop Fulton Sheen, so we so how can the seed of life planted in us at baptism grow and fully blossom into the beautiful radiation of Christ risen and glorified without the necessary work of the cross the cross is painful it's painful to die to be stripped to be purified it's painful to grow but the cross is a tree of life. It brings new life, brings us more into reality, into the fullness of truth. Once we pass through the pain, we will be very glad for the new life, the new freedom. Only the cross can bring us to the place we really want to be and yet are too weak to get there on our own. Like a mother in labor who is glad once the child is born and held in her arms, the good news is that the cross is not the end. It always leads to the resurrection. With the resurrection, hope is resurrected in our hearts. For love has triumphed, sin does not have the victory, Death is not the final word. Satan, our accuser, has been defeated. Our future is brighter. Our gaze is raised up from earth to heaven. Life is worth living. Alleluia. Amen. So I hope this is helpful. Uh, this will get us into the spirit of now living Holy Week more prayerfully, more deeply, and more fruitfully. Amen. Amen. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our celebration is ended. Go in peace. <laughs> <laughs> if I don't see you, uh, if you're going somewhere else for the Holy Week uh, liturgies or Triduum, God bless you. Uh, but let's uh, keep each other in prayer. Amen. Amen. Amen.